Uh, March the 23rd, 2014, lecture discussion number 148 on the book of Romans. So if you missed the previous 147, don't worry, you'll be right up with everybody today, I promise you that. Today is going to be an interesting day. And by interesting, I don't mean interesting. I mean exhausting, and I mean frustrating, maybe even tedious and dreary and boresome, uh, though I hope not. Um, But you've now been warned. Uh, It's not going to be the material. The material is fantastic. If I don't do justice to it, it is the presentation of the material uh, and the presenter who once again failed in the presentation. What's going to be interesting, regardless or irrespective, is going to be the measure of success that that is achieved. Can I get this information into you, which is my great hope, because it's so valuable. It is just so, uh, it comes up every single day in my life. I can't even, I can't go anywhere without running into somebody who will ask me a question about these subjects and um, it's it's so important to the fathers of the of the young children that are filling up this church. We're thinking about buying playground equipment, just putting it over there, because we got so many kids here now, and the, we would have hundreds more if we did that. We used to run the greatest Iwana uh, program in the city of Anchorage, where um, we played uh, war ball and, and indoor hockey. It was fantastic. Hardly anyone was killed. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But the kids loved it, and the parents did, and so did the orthopedic surgeons. And uh, it was uh, really a... That's what happens when old old PE teachers are given authority over Awana. We don't play the Awana games. We play tackle football. (laughs) Here's your Awana prize. Uh, Never mind. Uh, But again... What I'm attempting to do this Sunday uh, with lecture number 148 is to bring the totality of Isaiah 40, uh, 21 through 26 to you. Um, extraordinary passage in Scripture. And actually, I'm going to focus or be specific to Isaiah 40, 22 and for a while. It's going to take a while. And I have tried this before, this, uh, this lecture. So a warning is appropriate, an admonition. I need a lengthy legal disclaimer. I'm, I was thinking about what to say to you, how to how to get through these next few lectures, and all I could come to was the uh, typical one of the latest pharmaceutical product. Have you watched those where the commercial is about 10 seconds long, and it says, buy this amazing drug, and it has this very happy person who is obviously on that uh, amazing drug, and then there's a 45 seconds following that of side effects. And I know you've seen it, everything, it says... Uh, uh, hair loss and teeth loss and blindness and uh, tongue swelling and leprosy and death for 45 seconds, right? That's what they tell us. And, and then there's five seconds after that of ask your doctor for this drug today. And I've always asked myself, first, you know, first what? What first hundred customers get a free casket? I, I can't, I can't even believe what. The, I'm stunned by those commercials. Who would, who would buy that after listening to that disclaimer? Yeah, it sounded, it reads like radiation poisoning. I find it astonishing that anybody, but they have to do that as a part of their legal disclaiming process. And they recognize if they don't, somebody will sue them into oblivion. So that's, that's the analogy that I have for this lecture. You might understand 
that disclaimer as we get into things. So let's go ahead and start with Isaiah 40, 21 through 26. Just one of these places in the Old Testament that when you begin to study physics, you go, wow, who wrote this book? How did they, how did they know this? So here we go. I'll read it and uh, you follow along and starting on verse 21, he begins with, have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? This is God speaking and the implication is, is that you don't know, you haven't heard and you haven't been told. It's a rhetorical question. Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? So right off the bat, he's saying there's a beginning, there is foundations of the earth, and for whatever reason, it isn't known or it isn't heard to whom he's talking to. This, verse 22, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth. He's describing the earth as a what? As a circle, as a sphere. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Think insects. It is he who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely, I'm sorry, scarcely shall they, shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth when he will also blow on them and they will wither and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Quit worshiping human beings. Quit elevating your political leaders. Quit elevating people who have some kind of genetic history with somebody else that once was a king somewhere. Stop it. He said, "Who to whom will you liken to me when he blows on them and they wither? And by the way, that is an Antichrist reference as well, eventually. He blows on the Antichrist and he withers. The whole world thinks the Antichrist is God himself until God shows up. Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things. So lift up your eyes on high. Look at what? What's he telling you to look at? It's because if you look at it, you're going to see who created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them by name, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one is missing. So again, who can, who measures the heavens? Who is able to count it? Tell you how big it is? Let's just put it in, in today's vernacular. Who can add up the size of the universe, the creation? Who can do that? And who looks at us and sees us as tiny little things? But for today, I want you to go back and all, what we're going to focus on today is... Uh, um, This phrase stretches out the heavens. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain? 
he says that he's the one, God is the one, who has taken the universe and stretched it out like a curtain. What's he mean? He says it a few times. He says it a lot, actually, but uh, Psalm 104.2, Isaiah 42.5, Isaiah 44.24. It's one of the themes of Isaiah, that God stretches out the atmospheric uh, universe, if you will. And not my atmospheric, uh, I confuse myself there. What I mean by is he, he stretches out the matter in the what we would call the astronomy. And what does he mean? And why is he doing it? Now, I bring you to this happens to be a really quite fortunate, as a happenstance um, would have it. The astrophysicists have announced that they found evidence uh, for what they hope is an unintelligent mechanism. What do I mean by an unintelligent mechanism? They don't want there to be a creator God, an intelligent agency. They want some kind of agency, that, a mechanism that happened by chance that has no intelligence involved in it at all. In other words, if I showed you um, a complex piece of machinery, I don't care, pick whatever you want, a car. They want the car to have been put into position by some kind of process that required no intelligence at all to design it, make it, or assemble it. That's what they're after. So they, they've announced that they have found evidence um, for an unintelligent mechanism. They call it cosmic inflation. Now, you might have followed that. You don't have to ever raise your hand here. You would be crazy to raise your hand here. But I hope that you have been following the news a little bit now. I'm trying to get you interested in astrophysics as best I can. I hope you've heard of cosmic inflation. Um, and that evidence that they think that they have found is uh, electromagnetic polarization uh, in cosmic microwave background radiation. Cosmic microwave background radiation. Do you remember that? A bunch of new faces here today, but we just covered this a few weeks ago. I know, like I said, I tried to let you know. I can see some of you just crashing right now. I'm going to try. Maybe I will come up with a magic trick. Try to keep you in it. This is very important, and you will like knowing this. You really will. And and, and they think that they have found a electromagnetic polarization in this cosmic microwave background radiation that is everywhere around us. It is universal. They have found it and measured it. Yes, your hand up. Yeah, uh, yes, there's 147 of these. They're all just as good as this one. I'm, I'm kidding. But uh, you can go to the website, whatever it is. I don't know. But ask the terrifically. But anyway, there's cosmic microwave background radiation that that is bombarding the Earth. It's bombarding everywhere. It's ubiquitous. It's everywhere in the universe. It's universal. It, we have a temperature of three degrees Kelvin. It's exactly the same everywhere in the universe. That has to be explained. But they have found an electromagnetic polarization in this radiation. That means nothing to you yet. Stick with me. And as soon as they found it, they started celebrating. The celebratory uh, cheering is now cascading through the evolutionary high temples because they think, well, we have found our unintelligent mechanism uh, that solves a problem that we have. 
And the monists, as you know, the people that believe in monism, they believe that you will cease to exist when you die. Those people control the scientific community now, and they control the academic media. They believe, they teach, they never stop. It is relentless that when you die, you cease to exist. It is a bludgeoning of hopelessness that is in our academic institutions. It's awful. And it's so destructive, it's, I can't even begin to... Imagine how much destruction they have they have raked with this stuff. But the monists are nothing if they're not quick to glorify their preliminary discoveries. They trumpet them. And whether or not those preliminary discoveries actually prove out. If they don't prove out, they never come back and tell you. Or very rarely do they say, oops, we were wrong. See the coelacanth, for example. I got a letter from Peter in Australia, a very, very smart man. And he said, make sure that you uh, you go over the coelacanth, which is a fish that they declared to be an intermediate fossil. It's, they said it was 70 million years old, and the defense essentially would have four legs, and it had an oversized brain. And they said, wow, that's a transitional fossil. Well, we caught them alive. As soon as you put a bounty on them, the Japanese could find them everywhere. So could the, the Indonesians. They were finding them. And, 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 of course, they measured it, and it, it, it's a living fossil now, they say. My point is, is that their discoveries or their, their, their precepts that they will give to you, uh, if they don't prove out, you hardly ever hear about it. But they certainly go crazy when they have their announcement. And the media is likewise their usual syncopatic selves. Syncopatic. Long past is the time of a skeptical news media. Do not think the news media is impartial. They are no longer impartial if they ever were. They certainly are not. They are overwhelmingly choosing advocacy on behalf of atheism and statism. And and by the way, atheism and statism go together. It is a long-held communist tradition. So, hopefully you were here. Those of you who were here, you might remember that uh, cosmic inflation, when I briefly brought it up, was first proposed to solve the difficulty of this thermal equilibrium. We have thermal equilibrium in the entire universe. How do we get that way? It's a problem. It's called the horizon problem. The Big Bang cosmology theory uh, assumes an explosion of a particle. And that particle is so small and it has what, what is essentially infinite density. So the weight of it is infinite. And it explodes. And that explosion resulted in the manifestation of all this universe matter and mass, space, energy. So that's the Big Bang theory, right? I'm sure you're familiar with it. So the matter, the energy, the time, and the space came from this explosion of this tiny, essentially zero-size explosion. That's the beginning. The universe was at its beginning uh, a single tiny particle, zero-size, and it now has expanded. It is now stretched out. And that's why we bring up Isaiah 40.22. The universe has stretched out, it's expanded to its current unimaginable proportion. So think of it this way. I have a little tiny, you, 
there is there is the particle. See it? Whoops, I made it too big. There, you see it? Everybody see it? Okay, it's infinitely heavy. It, its weight is infinite. And it explodes to the size of the universe is now. Unimaginably large, filled with an unimaginable amount, uncountable amount of mass and energy and material space-time. Some of that was redundant. That's why he says, who can count it? Who can measure how big it is? The implication is, no one can but him. And that's the condition we have. Isaiah, absolutely, perfectly right. As it described the universe. It's so large that for it to have thermal equilibrium is not possible. Everywhere I take my little thermostat in the universe, I find three degrees Kelvin, approximately 2.77468, whatever it is. Approximately three degrees Kelvin. Everywhere in the universe, thermal equilibrium. How did I get that way? Think of your house. Think of your house as ten below when you walk in. And you light a fire in the living room. Okay, downstairs in the rec room. That'll make it easier. And, and you're burning, I don't know, whatever you have. Newspapers, the Mona Lisa, whatever you're burning. And you get the entire house to equilibrium. What? How did it happen? It took time. It took transference of heat energy. I have to transfer that. Say, say this when I first started, if you wish. Say this is a thousand degrees Kelvin, and I got to get that thousand degrees Kelvin through the entire um, universe and make everything now three degrees Kelvin. And how can I do it? The universe is so large, and the only transferable mechanism that I have, the fastest one that I have, is what? Light. I have the speed of light. And the speed of light is not fast enough to get all of that thermal equilibrium throughout the universe in the time they say that the universe is. They didn't do their math very well. It says 13.8 billion years old. Not enough time for the heat of the speed of light to transfer all that thermal energy, thermal in, to communicate that thermal information. It's called the horizon problem. The horizon of the constant speed of light can't be crossed, can't be bridged. We can't make light faster to do this. And hopefully you remember that discussion from an earlier lecture. So, the people that wanted the Big Bang Theory to be correct, they had to come up with a plan. They needed an idea. They couldn't defeat the horizon problem of the thermal equilibrium. And by the way, the cosmic microwave background radiation... That is part of the horizon problem issue. Because that, uh, that is, as I said, that is radiation that is everywhere in the universe. So, got to have a plan. Shot in the dark, a hope, throw a dart at a board. I got to come up with some way to defeat this. And, and the answer was the cosmic inflation theory. And that was submitted uh, for consideration uh, 20 years or so ago, maybe maybe 30. I think perhaps 30 would be closer. I'm, I'm not particularly uh, aware of exactly when. I remember when it happened, and we all thought 
great. This is just throw mud at the, at the white wall and hope something sticks. But now they say, we have found evidence of it in this radiation that is everywhere. And here's what they say. It is, this is the theory simplified. Cosmic inflation says that space expanded. Notice the differentiation. I have in the created order, I have space, I have matter, I have energy, and I have time. They say one of those expanded very rapidly. The space did. And it expanded so fast because, remember, all I got is a tiny little particle of, of infinite density. And it explodes. And out of that comes space, time, matter, and energy. And the space goes really fast. Think balloon if you, if you have to. But uh, we'll get, I'll get to that in a minute. They say that the fabric of the universe it, it expands at a factor of 10 to the 25th power. And it gets that big in 10 to the negative 34 seconds. That's really big in a very, very short of time. To get 25 orders of magnitude in 10 to 34, minus 34 seconds, uh, that is so much faster than the speed of light, it's ridiculous. Oops. And the basic premise, you see, is this. That when I was this little tiny particle, you see, everybody still see the particle? It's right there. There. When I was that little tiny particle, or when the universe, all this matter that's in the universe was that little tiny particle, just as it begins to explode, before it really inflates. Now, how fast does it inflate? 10 to the negative 34. How big does it get? 25 orders of magnitude. 10 to the 25th magnitude. That's the size of a galaxy. Boom! In that short amount of time. Bigger than that. The premise is this. Just before it explodes into this huge magnitude, thermal equilibrium occurs. So uh, the explosion has started, and when every part of space is really close together, I get a nice thermal equilibrium, and then space explodes. That's cosmic inflation. That's the basic premise. Now, they'll argue with me that's very simplistic, and it is. I'm just trying to get you a little bit fluent. So the teeny tiny little particle um, thermally equalizes before the cosmic expansion or inflation occurs. And that solved their problem. That was the theory that occurred 30 years ago. And the Einstein's theory of relativity isn't violated because what's expanding really fast, faster than the speed of light? What is it? It's not matter. And it's not energy. It's just the space. So they say we're not violating the Einstein's theory of relativity. So, again, if you want that balloon idea, think of a very rapidly inflating balloon that had stuff inside that gravitates to the outside of it. So the balloon really fast, and then the stuff moves to its locations onto or inside of the balloon at a rate uh, uh, below or at the speed of light. I agree, again, I concede, not a great example. It's all I got. Um, the cosmic inflationary theory doesn't give me much to work with. But anyway, the theory's point is the expansion of space was once ridiculously faster than the speed of light. Then it stopped. So we went, 
much faster than the speed of light, many times faster than the speed of light, and then we stop. So, ridiculously faster, and then stopped being ridiculously faster than the speed of light. But they give us no mechanism. What's the mechanism that caused this? They had no mechanism that, that uh, either the the faster than the speed of light occurred or the stopping occurred. There's no mechanism for either of those. None that has survived intellectual scrutiny, in my humble opinion. And um, and I think because the concept on its face is ridiculous. I think I'll continue to uh, convince you of that, but I digress for now. So, I need a propulsion mechanism that drove or drives the universe into expansion from an infinite gravity state. I have essentially an infinite gravity state. And I gotta get out of it. How do I get out of an infinite gravity state? I gotta have something that blows it up and they have to come up with a mechanism. What do they come up with? They come up with repulsion gravity. Or if you like, repulsive. Never mind. I'll stick with repulsion gravity. That's my mechanism. Okay, I'll change it to repulsive. That's more correct, I think. I have, I have this infinite gravity state, and I gotta get it out of it, and gravity is what? By nature. What does gravity do? I'll, I'll show you. Here is, here is gravity in work. It is attracting the little pin. It's reaching up and grabbing it. I used to tell my high school kids, I wish Katrina was here because she would yell out tiny little gremlins, what I call Chronister's invisible gremlin theory. And I asked them to refute me. Because you know what they say causes gravity, right? Gravi- gravitrons. I said, no, it's tiny little invisible gremlins with long arms that pull things down. And you can't see them. But you can't see gravitrons either. either. So you what? You believe gravitrons? Because it sounds like a really cool way of explaining it. I think my little tiny invisible gremlin theory has merit. And I'd argue with them much to their dismay. But again, I have infinite attractive gravity and I've got to get out of it with some mechanism. And so they say, well, there must be repulsive gravity. And Isaac Newton, as you know, declared gravity to only be an attractive force. It's not a repulsive force. Uh, So we're arguing with Isaac Newton right off the bat. Now, Einstein's general relativity, to be fair, his theory describes gravity as in in distortion terms. In other words, by not saying definitively it's an attractive force, he allows for the concept of repulsive gravity, and they seized upon that. And that, by the way, is the whole point of why I'm doing this. I'm trying to get you where today? Einstein's... Special and general relativity theory. Because that is a prominent piece in every one of these discussions. If you're in a discussion on the Bible at some point, you're going to have to be in a discussion on Einstein's special and general relativity theory. I know I have people come to me all the time and they say, I don't, I don't care. I had a guy hold up a sign in one of my lectures. Many years ago, I, who cares is what he said. And I've never forgotten it. 
and uh, it is, I can see his face. I even know where he was now. I can imagine, not imagine, remember him. Um, but that was, I've run into that a lot. I know why you will care. Because at some point, as I say all the time, someone near you will die. And then you'll have armor against that. You can reason it, Hebrews tells you. Use your mind. He says it here in Isaiah. Uh, Look up. Lift your eyes on high and see. You can figure it out. He didn't give you something that you couldn't reason your way through. He doesn't ask you to be What's the word I want? Oblivious. He gives you evidences and clues and a road map. And it becomes powerful ammunition for you, for yourselves. This is a tough life. It's no fun. You heard that here first. Anyway. Einstein's special and general relativity theory is going to be something. Once you get a hold of it, I promise you, you're going to talk about it almost every every day to somebody. It's that valuable. And do you think it's in the Bible? If it's true, it's in the Bible. Einstein, as brilliant as he was, um, could have read his Bible. And found his theory. Just as all of them could. Anyway. It becomes necessary to be somewhat fluent in relativity theory. Or confront the possibility of not being fluent and being buried and beaten by those who utilize physics to attack the uninformed or the ill-informed. And they especially attack the ill-informed Christians who are without controversy, the primary targets of uh, monism, because we resist monism. Okay, inflation theory supposes that cosmic inflation, the cosmic inflation process may have imprinted a polarization on this cosmic microwave background radiation. What does that mean? It's cosmic microwave background radiation, uh, like all is electromagnetic radiation is a wave. What do I mean by that? Uh, as a wave, it moves in, in all directions. Okay? Think pebble. If I drop a pebble, it's still water. What am I going to get? You're going to get a wave going out like this, right? And a wave going out like this, and a wave going out like this, and a wave going out like this, in all directions, right? Almost a, a symmetrical pattern. From that dropping of that pebble, as long as I drop it nice and clean and I don't throw it in or I don't have any other uh, issues. But polarization means that somehow this wave has a predisposition of polarization. It has one part of it that is particularly uh, aggressive, if you will, or particularly pronounced. It could be this part, for example. That would be a polarized waveform. Or if you want to look at it on an oscilloscope, for example, there's a waveform. I might have this. So I would have a polarized waveform. And they said that 
their theory of cosmic inflation will cause a polarization in this microwave background, or cosmic microwave background radiation that is everywhere around us. It will be everywhere, and it has this little polarization, or again, this predisposition. And so what can cause this? Is the only cause of this polarization that they say they have found, is the only cause of it to be inflation, cosmic inflation, their theory. Because it's probably true that it is polarized, I'll concede that point. But is cosmic inflation what caused it? Or did something else cause it? But this cosmic microwave background polarization that they say they have found now, again, I'm conceding that they found it. Would they lie to me? Yeah. They would. Why? Because if they, they're paid. There's a, there's an incentive, it's incentivized financially. I said earlier that the, unfortunately, the, the scientific community has gone the way of, of almost all of our society. We have become polluted by politics and money. It's sad. We almost can't trust anybody. We certainly can't trust the churches. They're just as polluted as anybody else. In case somebody thinks I'm picking on the scientists. A little League is polluted by money. If you don't think that's true, who, who put their kids out for an all-star team? Found out that the rich people all got all the, all the, it's ridiculous. I've dealt with that my whole life. Anyway, they herald this cosmic microwave background radiation with its polarization or its predisposition, um, they say that that is the proof of their cosmic inflation theory, and therefore, by extension, it is proof that the universe is 14 billion years old, 13.8 billion years old, and that it suddenly appeared, and it appeared exactly as we say with this uh, repulsive gravity and, and all of this uh, fabric of space expansion at many times the speed of light. And this is proof because we have found a polarization in the cosmic microwave background radiation. And the Big Bang model is now true. That's how far it went. That's what they did in the last two weeks. But let's ask, is there really repulsive gravity? Really? Are these, is this Polarization, is that primordial gravity waves? As they say it is. Was it caused by this cosmic inflation? Was this ridiculous expansion rate a go out at a tremendous a multiple of the speed of light and then arrested by the attractive force of gravity? Is that, is that what happened? Is there two kinds of gravity, repulsive and attractive gravity? Is there anything faster than the speed of light? That becomes the question. People ask me that all the time, and I say yes. Whoa, he's a scientific heretic. They never listen to me, but I have a creation position, so that means I have what? I have a creator. It occurs to me that the person that made light is faster than it. 
That's just logical. The one who says that he stretches out the universe is faster. I like to say it this way, the primable light, because God calls himself the Shekinah glory. So if you want to think of the primable light, I'll put the primable light on the board so you can see it. Primable light is everywhere in the Bible, and that is equal to the Shekinah glory, or the glory of the Lord. He always talks about himself in light terms. You can trace the primable light through the Bible. Arnold Fruchtenbaum does a fantastic job of tracking the primable light as it's moving through Scripture in his book, uh, Footsteps of the Messiah. I would recommend you uh, read his work on that. But anyway, the primable light is greater than the physical light. I have two kinds of light in the Bible. One is the Shekinah glory, the other is physical light. So, primeval light versus physical light. Clearly, primeval light is faster than physical light. So, uh, that's uh, for some, another discussion. But uh, that is my position. Again, the, to answer the questions I just asked about uh, repulsive gravity and primordial gravity waves and cosmic inflation, attractive force, and um, is there anything physical that is non-God faster than the speed of light? That would be the correct way to, to answer those questions and a host of others. What do we have to do? Where do we go next? We have to uh, get into Einstein's theory of relativity. That's where we're headed today, along with our other good friend that we have, uh, thermodynamics. It isn't a coincidence, let me repeat this, it is not a coincidence that the Bible is filled to the brim with references to light and time and thermodynamics and space and observation, relativity, the created order, it is not a coincidence. People say all the time that the Bible is not written to be a scientific book. And every time they say it, I just go to, I say, you know what? I disagree. I find scientific information in it that is perfect over and over and over again. And God is outside of time. He's the creator of time. He is not subject to time. He has authority over time. He sees time simultaneously. That allows him to write a book that would anticipate what people would say. He would anticipate what people who hate him would say to people who love him. And how they would try to destroy anyone who believes in him. He'd make sure that there was armor against that. Okay, to continue with this discussion. At some time, the universe was energized. And it was energized by electromagnetic forces and gravitational energy forces or energy sources. So we have to say to ourselves, we have energy, electromagnetic and gravitational. Electromagnetic would include light. Um, gravitational, uh, we end up with all kinds of different theories on that. And we'll have to get into dark matter and dark energy, whether or not they even really exist, by the way. And as an aside, space and time are now unified in physics. What do they call space and time, the unification of it? It's, you, you all go to the silly movies, what do they call it? They call it space-time, that's right. So we have 
a discussion on electromagnetic and gravitational energizing of the universe and as energy sources, and we have space-time. So be prepared for that. And it bears repeating the question uh, that I just asked. of Why would anyone assume that cosmic inflation is the mechanism that caused this, what they claim to have found in cosmic microwave background radiation? What makes them think that radiation was polarized by cosmic inflation? And the reason they want that to be true, and, and they believe that it is true, and they are heralding it as true without any really... Uh, there are hundreds of mechanisms that could cause that. And there are hundreds of cosmic inflation varieties. Which one are we saying is correct? We have this, this unified generality of cosmic inflation. But cosmic inflation, remember, as I hope I covered it, is the theory that was originated to combat the onslaught that came when they developed this Big Bang paradigm, because they had a rival theory. Uh, most of you might not have been alive during that time. I certainly was. The rival theory uh, that was, everyone believed it. It was the model. The Big Bang is relatively young in comparison was the quasi-steady-state creation, QSSC. Or the steady-state theory. That's the preferred model. They want steady-state to be true. They did. It's lost now. Now we got cosmic inflation and we have the Big Bang. They don't like the Big Bang. They've never liked the Big Bang. They had a, the Big Bang is a concession because the Big Bang implies something. What? You know the old joke, who lit the fuse, right? They know that. That's why they have to have an unintelligent agency. That's why they have to have a cosmic inflation, an unintelligent mechanism. They can't have uh, somebody actually causing the explosion. We have to have some other cause, Right? And the steady state people knew that, and they could not, they were not going to allow the Big Bang to come into any kind of acceptance. Steady state theory essentially is the belief that the universe has always been in existence and has never not been in existence and can never go out of existence. So the universe is steady state. It's always been here. It will always be here. And it's very old, billions and billions of years old. Along came the Big Bang people who were looking at the astrophysics of all of this going, wow, I don't think so. I don't think it's, there's a beginning. And if you have a beginning, then what is implied? Because the Big Bang people have conceded to who? To me. Yes, me. They don't know me. But people like me, they have conceded to us that there's a beginning. If you have a beginning, what do you have? Well, yeah, you have an ending. You certainly have the possibility of an ending. That's on the table. Very good. I should have wrote, written that down. That's very funny, too. Dang it, I missed that. But if you have a beginning, then you have a beginner. It implies an intelligent agency, not an unintelligent one. It implies a creator. Steady state theory rapidly rejects the beginning of a universe. They don't want any possibility that we have a starting point. They certainly don't want something to begin. What do they not want to begin? They do not want 
time to begin. We can't have the beginning of time. No. And that's why they, they frothed at the mouth. They rejected it and they foam over the beginning of time and the Bang Bang Theory. When the Big Bang Theory came out, they thought they had lost the debate to the biblical creationists. And the Big Bang Theory, as I said, has to have this unintelligent agency. That's what cosmic inflation is. That's why they're trumpeting it. That's why they say that this polarization of cosmic microwave background radiation is a proof of it. Because they still have to mollify, if you will, the uh, steady state theory people. And to give the steady state theorists their due, they recognize the significance of that phrase in the Bible, the, the in the beginning phrase. They don't like a beginning. We can't have a beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That, the trouble that verse causes because it says there's a beginning to time. And now, by the way, the Big Bang people say what about time? They, they can say, yes, time has a beginning. But both the Big Bang and steady state models agree on cosmic expansion. And on that note, I know I'm supposed to get to, I'm watching my time, I'm trying to get to Einstein. This is the introduction to Einstein. I hope I make it. I don't always make it. But on the note that the Big Bang and steady state, they both agree that the universe is expanding. And last Sunday, I threw into the air, uh, into the mix, if you will, galactic centricity. You remember that? I did it at the very end. Some people might have thought that I meant geocentricity. I do not mean that. I do not think that the earth, uh, or the sun revolves around the earth. I'm, I am certainly not in that category. I know some are. But I was talking about galactic centricity. I drew the universe again. Galactrocentricity, if you want the correct term. The question is, is, I ask this, is the Milky Way, or is the Earth in the Milky Way, where is it located? If that is the universe, and it's finite, I'm going to argue that it is finite. Thank you, I see the hands. I'm going to argue that it is finite. Then where is the Milky Way? Where is the Earth inside the Milky Way? Where in the universe is it? Is it here, I asked, on the outside edge right there? Is that where it is? Because if it's there, I can prove it's there. Or for those of you following on the internet, I then said, is it dead sinner? Because if it is dead sinner, I can prove that too. You see, in 1937, Edwin Hubble, you know who he is, I hope. We've named something after him. The Hubble Telescope. He discovered that distant objects had red-shifted light. Let's talk about red-shifted light really fast. That's the right the, the light spectrum. Here is red-shifted light. And I do not have blue, so pretend that the black is blue. Pretend that the red is Red, good, good, we're on. We're doing good. Edwin Hubble in 1937 discovered that distant objects had red-shifted light, which is evidence of an expanding universe, a universe that is continuing to stretch out. 
And he's observing this from where? Somewhere in the universe. He's noticing that the universe is expanding, continuing to stretch out. Red shifted light, uh, and I'll go over this more in detail next week, implies outward velocity. In other words, because as a light source moves away uh, from an observer, the wavelength increases. What I mean by that is I have, anytime I get a wavelength frequency, light is ultimately a frequency. If I get a wavelength frequency like this, and then the wavelength increases. So this point is longer than this point, right? You got that? Wavelength increase. Anytime the wavelength increases, then the color of the light, of the visible light, shifts towards the red spectrum, called red shift. So if light is moving away from me, it red shifts, and I can pick that up. Astrophysics allows that has that capability, and on the and the converse, of course, is if it starts to blue shift, then it must be doing what? It must be moving towards me. If it's increasing in frequency, uh, then it is moving towards me. If it's decreasing in frequency, increasing in wavelength. Now that means nothing to you yet, but you'll get it. Just know that when something's going away from you and it's a light source, it will redshift. If it's coming towards me, it will blue shift. And this is the Doppler effect eventually. Blue shifted light indicates a velocity towards the observer. Red shifted light indicates a velocity away from the observer. Anyway, Hubble found that most galaxies overwhelmingly have red shifted light. So that means they're moving away from him. And he's where? Well, somewhere in the universe. And he's found all this red shifting light. In fact, Hubble and William Tift analyzed the redshift mathematically and concluded something. What did they conclude? Do you know? You should know. They concluded that it was symmetrical from where they were observing. Which meant what? A guy named Ellis said the same thing. I got all this light moving away from me from every angle, no matter where I check, it's all going. And... It's all red-shifted, or mostly there's some blue-shift anomaly. We'll get into that. But I have all this red-shifted light, and the only way that can be true is what? If I stop dead center. Oops. That's a big problem. See, obviously this is not acceptable. If the universe is expanding... Uh, in a spherical symmetry, then that means the earth is in a unique position. And that is not allowable to the monists. That's not acceptable. Hubble called this conclusion that he had an absolute horror because he was a monist. How can I have this? In any event, we're going to have to get into the curvature of space. That'll enter in as to the end of space, if it has a barrier, a wall. If space is finite, and it is, then it comes to an end. If it has an edge, if you will, uh, if it does have an edge, wait for it. Now, if I can prove it has an edge and it is finite, then it has to have a center. And Hubble concluded that we were at the center, but he thought that there had to be some way to disprove it. Because the implication is powerful. If I have one center... In a finite universe, and red-shifted light determines that we're it, 
And think of the implications of that. That's Paramis paradox. Remember that? Paramis said what? How can it be this incredible expanse of the universe has no life in it but right here? Makes no sense. But what if right here is the one center of the whole universe? Now that's a big problem. As Hubble said, that's a horror for the evolutionist. So it's very valuable to you to understand red-shifted light. We are, if we are viewing the creation from top dead center and, the, and are the only physical life in this entire incredibly unimaginable, not measurable by humanity, then the, this immense, it's so staggering to consider it side. If we're the only wife and we're the only sinner, that is a big piece of information. Did they teach you that in school? Anywhere? No. Because it's a horror to the physicalists, the evolutionists. Got all of that? Okay. Don't have much time, so let's try something more funner. Notice I didn't say easier. Really fast. Can I do it really fast? I'm going to try. Einstein's theory of relativity also has an observation element as its central component. As a central component, probably the central component. Notice this observation. Somebody is observing something that's very important to physics. Eventually, we're going to compare Einstein to Isaac Newton as Einstein um, and Max Planck. By the way, my mother's maiden name, just for fun, I'll put it on the board for you. It is a derivative of Planck. I'm fascinated by that. I always hope it's been true that somehow, and we're all from Germany, I would hope that it's true that somehow me and Max shared an ancestor. That would just make me laugh, make my mother miserable. But anyway, Isaac Newton was a devout Christian. He believed in absolute time and absolute space, and that there was a universal time. What he means by that is there somewhere there's one clock, a universal clock, if you will, and that, that keeps time for all observers, and there is an absolute observer of that absolute time clock. He's a devout Christian. That's what he believed. Einstein, in 1905, published his theory with the idea that different observers seem... seem ah, sorry. Take medicine. Different observers see the same event occurring at different times and places. Einstein recognized motion and velocity as greatly significant. Here's my example. Imagine that Bill and I are standing... We'll, we'll say we're standing here. Jane is not here today, so she's going to lose her role and relinquish her immortality. Uh, Bill and I are here. Well, we're further apart than that. Say that we're uh, a couple hundred yards apart, and we each have a handgun. Is it likely that Bill and I each have a handgun? Yes, it's very unlikely that we each have one. This is Alaska. Okay, we have two uh, handgun each, and and Bonnie, Bill's wife, is standing over here. That's her hair. She's maybe a half a mile away from us, and she sees us both fire our handguns, and she sees both guns fire exactly simultaneous. So she's in proximity, but she's quite a ways away, and she sees Bill and I, who are standing apart, say 100 yards, fire 
and she sees it simultaneously. But Jane, at a distance, I'll go ahead and keep her immortal, even though she's not here. But Jane, at a distance, let's say she's five miles away, and she's flying by in a plane overhead, and assume that she can see. She has enhanced vision, whatever you want to. And she's flying at the speed of sound. So Bonnie sees us fire, and she sees simultaneous. Jane is flying overhead in a plane. There she is. And she sees us as well. She's not going to see both guns fire at the same time. She's going to see one gun fire before the other. Einstein's relativity tells us that both Jane and Bonnie are correct. Because time and space are relative. I know that's a big, what? That's okay. Different observers in relative motion to one another will see different times. One observer will see simultaneous. The other sees one gun fire before the other. The time and distance measured by both observers is different. And both observers are correct. That, in a nutshell, or in a basic form, is Einstein's theory of relativity that has been proven time and time and time and time again. Relativity says that time and distance change dependent on the relative motion of the observers. Imagine if Bonnie wasn't standing still, but she's passing by on a locomotive. Okay? The opposite direction of Jane. So Bill and I are firing. Bonnie's going one way. Jane's going the other way. One's at the speed of sound. The other bullet train might go, what, 350 miles an hour? So I have them going in opposite directions uh, uh, as each other, and Bill and I firing those guns. Imagine that. Eventually, we're going to have a thought experiment and have Jane and Bonnie moving at the speed of light and me and Bill moving in different directions, firing the guns and figuring out which one was fired first. But the point is, is all observation will be correct because you see relatively to your motion and your location. And then what do we have next? We're going to have moving clocks If I have moving clocks, I have clocks in motion, what time is it now? And we're going to tell time while the observers are also in motion. So I have a clock in motion, an observer in motion. What time is it? Will time change? It's called time dilation. Do you go to the eye doctor? What does he do when he dilates your eyes? What happens to your eyes? They, what? Stretch out. Time dilation, the stretching of time. The observer's in motion, the clock's in motion. One observer will say an hour has elapsed. The other one will say a hundred hours has elapsed, and they're both correct. That's Einstein's theory of relativity. Are you going to get this? Yes. I'm good enough. I'll make sure you get it. And you'll like it. (laughs) Maybe not. Should see your faces. <laughs> but to close for today, you know your favorite word, close for today. Imagine you're in an absolute smooth car. 
It's quiet. It's smooth and it's quiet. Absolutely, you can't hear a thing and you are, it's so smooth you can't feel a thing, okay? And I painted all your windows black. You can't hear the engine. You can't see the road. You have no relative sense at all to anything around you, okay? And you can't see out. You can't hear any sound. You can't know if you are moving relative to the road. You can't watch the road. So you don't know anything. I've got you in my black car. And if the car is going 100 miles an hour, and you've all been in a car going 100 miles an hour, you kids do not tell your parents you've done that. I did it. I threw a bottle out. Not a beer bottle. I'm so old there were soda bottles back then. I wanted to see what happened when it hit the pavement at 100 miles an hour. I made it to Kenai in a very short period of time. Uh, and it, it powderized it. Now you will know that I'm going 100 miles an hour. I throw a Coke bottle out. Yes, it was a Coke. No, there wasn't any Diet Coke. I threw it out and it hit the pavement. And I threw it forward because I knew I wanted to see it, and I couldn't see it. I was going a hundred miles an hour. So what did I have to do? I had to turn around and look. Going a hundred miles an hour. I am an idiot. Anyway, if the car that you're in is going a hundred miles an hour and you open a soda, can you pour it in a glass? You've done it. You've put your makeup on, you've poured sodas, you've talked on your phone, you've made paper airplanes, you've done all kinds of things. And you certainly poured a drink while you're going 60 down the Seward Highway, haven't you? Yes, you have. The police are taping this. There's cameras everywhere. So, you open a soda can at 100 miles an hour and you pour it into a glass and you place it on the dashboard. Does the soda fly off the dashboard and hit you in the face? No, it doesn't. So, conceive of an experiment that you can do inside the car to determine if you're moving. Can you do an experiment? Don't break the windows. That's not an idea. I know that's everybody's first thought. I taught high school. You can't break the windows. It's against the rules. Conceive in your mind a, a, a process by which you can tell if you're moving or if you're stopped. You cannot feel it and you cannot see it. And you cannot hear anything. Can you determine if you're moving? See, it's called inertial frame of reference. You could be going 200 miles an hour or 20,000 miles per hour or stop completely. How are you going to know? Inertial frame of reference. You can't determine if the car is moving at constant velocity or is standing still. Our, our galaxy, our Milky Way galaxy, is at constant velocity. It's moving. But it's our inertial frame of reference. We're moving. Everything's moving. We're in a car, if you will, going 100 miles an hour. Well, actually, it's many, many times faster than that. We're in a galaxy spinning. We're on an Earth that's rotating and orbiting the sun. And yet I can pour a soda. That's called inertial frame of reference. Einstein determined that speed of light has the same value for all inertial observers. And that's going to become very important next week. So next week, we're going to slow down clocks, speed up clocks. We're going to have gravitational wells, because things fall into gravitational wells, and they come out weird. 
We're going to have time dilation. We're going to have mass energy equivalence. What's mass in- energy equivalence? I'll help you. I'm talking about Einstein here, right? What is the C? Speed of light squared, right? Energy equals mass times speed of light squared. Mass energy equivalence. And of course, space time. Space time. All of this to get a discussion of distant starlight. You have to know about how the light got here. How fast it got here. How did God do it? Are we looking at history? Or are we looking at real time? Do we see light in real time? Our time? Or somebody else's time? Or is that light reflecting something that's no longer even there? Is God giving us light for something that is is no longer in existence? How does it work? Solve that, and you move through your life with a lot more fun, which is the whole point. So, who's inviting visitors next week? Don't raise your hand. Next week, here we go again, you will get it. Where else can you get Einstein's theory of relativity beat down your throat? Where? That's right. Only here, beautiful downtown cliffside. Let's rise to be this man.